This podcast discusses topics that may be distressing and awaken memories of past traumatic experiences and abuse. Please check the show notes for more detailed descriptions. Welcome to Charity Village Connects. I'm your host, Mary Barrel. That's the sound of a hummingbird pollinating our world and making it a better place. The hummingbird is Charity Village's logo because we strive, like the industrious hummingbird, to make connections across the nonprofit sector and help make positive change. Over this series of podcasts, we'll explore topics that are vital to the nonprofit sector in Canada. Topics like diversity, equity, and inclusion, mental health in the workplace, the gap in female representation in leadership, and many other subjects crucial to the sector. We'll offer insight that will help you make sense of your life as a nonprofit professional, make connections to help navigate challenges, and support your organization to deliver on its mission. In this episode, upon the occasion of the anniversary of the first National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, we examine the dark history laying beneath the bright color of orange that's become associated with the Indigenous victims and survivors of Canada's residential schools. I remember them taking me away from my mother and uh, my stepfather. And uh, I can hear them telling my mom that was the best thing for me, that not to worry, I, I would be looked after. Today, Pope Francis begins what he calls a pilgrimage of penance, appearing before survivors and their families, where children were once forcibly separated from their loved ones, where their connections to family, language, and culture were deliberately shattered, where trauma that has echoed across the generations began. Indigenous leaders say school deaths were underreported, and the actual number of children in unmarked graves across Canada could be in the tens of thousands. They want to find them all. Five years after delivering their final report on one of the darkest chapters in Canadian history, residential schools, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission says little action has been taken on their 94 recommendations. This week, we inaugurate Truth and Reconciliation Day with some of the churches acknowledging harsh truths and others seeking forgiveness and reconciliation for past abuses. You are called to respect this day, not as a holiday, but as a time of serious introspection, as we would memorialize Remembrance Day. As we highlight key milestones in the ongoing journey for recognition and reconciliation of the tragic consequences resulting from this country's residential school system, we'll hear unique perspectives from Indigenous leaders across Canada on what September 30th means to them, the painful legacy it symbolizes, and how, together, we can hopefully move forward. Our conversations will include the role of reciprocity and reparations as a means of looking beyond remorseful words and land acknowledgments from settlers. 
towards real action and deeds that can help make national healing more than just a concept. And underlying this special episode of Charity Village Connects is the role that Canadian nonprofits can play in supporting Indigenous-led charitable activities. Considering that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada was established over 14 years ago, why has the sector failed to take a more meaningful role in an area where its support could make a real difference? We'll hear from Indigenous leaders about their thoughts on truth and reconciliation and how the nonprofit sector can better support and ally with Indigenous-led organizations and communities. I get conflicted with words versus actions. It's great that the Pope came here and made an apology. But the truth is, no amount of money and no amount of words will ever be enough. The harm inflicted on people by having their culture and their language taken from them. When I was in that same space as him and when I heard these words, it hit pretty hard. It sort of surfaced a lot of emotion, started to think about my own life experience. My parents specifically came to my mind. so. It was very emotional. It was a very emotional experience for myself. Very quickly, the language of reconciliation, we call the rhetoric of reconciliation, was washed down and very quickly centered the needs, the desires, and the interests of white folks and their desire to reconcile with this painful history. My grandmother was sent with her brother to residential school when she was three, and she stayed there until she was 18. She spoke very little of that time. And when I was raised, we were told that my grandmother went to school and was raised by nuns in a convent. I didn't know what residential school was. Being an ally is a part of that relationship process between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples in Canada. And being an ally is willing to recognize that each of us have experiences that give us unique perspectives on life, on how we view our communities, that we each have unique ways of knowing, doing, and being. This is a papal trip like no other. Pope Francis arriving in Canada to apologize to its indigenous peoples. Three survivors meeting the Pope at the airport representing the thousands who were abused at Catholic-run residential schools sanctioned by the government. In late July 2022, Pope Francis, head of the Catholic Church, began what the Vatican called a penitential pilgrimage to Canada. The main purpose of this long-awaited visit was to meet with indigenous groups and officially apologize for the years of neglect and abuse associated with the largely Catholic-run, federally-funded residential school system designed to strip Indigenous children of their families, traditions, language, and culture. Reactions to the papal apology by residential school survivors and Indigenous leaders were reported to be mixed with some criticizing the Pope's statements for not specifically mentioning the sexual abuse experienced by victims in the schools. Others were disappointed that the pontiff didn't draw a direct connection between the church as an institution in what many have recognized as the oppression, mistreatment, and cultural genocide of indigenous peoples in this country. 
The Papal Apology is only the latest hard-won milestone in the decades-long journey of advocacy by Indigenous leaders. According to Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, also known as the TRC, over 6,000 Indigenous children died from neglect or abuse in residential schools, which were government-sponsored institutions run by Catholic, Anglican, Methodist, and Presbyterian churches from 1883 to 1996. In total, more than 150,000 First Nations, Métis, and Inuit children were forcibly taken from their parents and placed in residential schools. The traumatic impact on survivors and their descendants of the system continues to resonate to this day. Of course, I get conflicted with words versus actions. It's great that the Pope came here and made an apology in Canada. Their commitment during the TRC settlement of the class action lawsuit was to put a certain amount towards reconciliation efforts, which they've never paid. That's Peter Dinsdale, the former chief executive officer for the Assembly of First Nations and currently president and CEO of YMCA Canada. He was also the Assembly's representative on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's all-party committee. But the truth is, no amount of money and no amount of words will ever be enough. The harm inflicted on people by having their culture and their language taken from them, by being sexually abused and being taken away from their homes and sent back to their homes and having those cycles start, no amount of words or money is going to overcome that. I went to residential school when I was seven years old. The residential school system uh, took away my, lang my language, my culture, and uh, my identity. See, for me, truth is one piece. We understand the truths that happened, there were some truths in the TRC process, but there is the reconciliation point. And how do you reconcile that? You have to reconstitute languages, you have to reconstitute nations, you have to reconstitute cultures. And that's some of the hard work that people in our community are doing. And sometimes I think they get prevented by their ongoing pain themselves and their personal healing that they have to go through. So my hope is that the Pope's visit and his apology here provides those people that comfort so they are able to move on. But the hard work will continue. Tim Fox is a member of the Blackfoot Confederacy from the Blood Reserve and current Vice President of Indigenous Relations and Equity with the Calgary Foundation. Tim attended the event at which the Pope delivered his apology for the Catholic Church's role in the residential school system, although initially he was reluctant to go. To be honest, my initial gut reaction was I don't really care to go. I wasn't interested in going at all. One thing I want to share is that I was raised Catholic. The Catholic faith was really strong in my family. My late grandmother had a huge hand in raising me, and she was a very devout Catholic, as well as my aunt Bernadette, who I consider you know my second mom. So it was very prominent in our family. And that was sort of the faith that I was raised to believe. It wasn't until I became very aware of the residential school system. It wasn't until, you know, I think I was in my late teens that I began to really find out about what that meant. Then furthermore, I discovered that both of my parents went to residential schools, that the school on our reserve, on the Blood Reserve, St. Mary's, residential school was still standing structure, as well as St. Paul's. So I began to realize all of these things. 
And then fast forward a little bit more into my young adult life, you begin to sort of realize and make a lot of connections to the challenges that you're faced with as an Indigenous person. And I began to have that realization as a young adult. Grew up with a lot of challenges, grew up exposed to a lot of substance abuse in my father, a lot of extreme domestic violence issues. And so just a lot of resent. And the realization that I had was that the experiences that I went through as a child were just a fraction of what my parents had to go through as children because of their time at the residential school system. So I started to piece all of this stuff together. And then that's where my decision to step away from the Catholic faith emerged. And I began to lean into my indigenous spirituality more so. And so when that invitation came to partake in this visit, I wasn't excited. After much reflection, Tim finally decided to attend to support the survivors. But the antipathy of the younger generation was demonstrated by the reaction of his 11-year-old daughter when he asked her if she too would like to attend the papal event. So then after giving it some thought, I decided, yeah, I'm going to go. It's a historical thing. There's probably going to be some survivors within the delegation that I can maybe offer some support to along the way. So that was my decision. And I presented this to my 11-year-old daughter to say, oh, hey, you know, we're going to be attending this Pope visit. And to my surprise, she also really clearly expressed the fact that she did not want to attend. So after inquiring a little bit more with her and just trying to figure out why she was so against this trip, it was because of the fact that it was the Pope and because of her grandparents, her papa, my father, her grandma. So she knows that they're both residential school survivors. That conversation is happening a lot more, thankfully, in school these days that she is aware of the severity of that part of our shared history. She was not excited for that very reason. So in a way, I was kind of proud that the mind of 11-year-old had that context to make that decision that she did not want to attend. Tim traveled to Masquatees, Alberta, as part of a delegation invited to attend the event. I asked him what his thoughts and feelings were while listening to the Pope's apology. There was a feeling of an anticipation on what he was going to say more so. And so when it was finally delivered, I guess the words that were spoken when you are someone with lived experience, from my experience, when I was in that same space as him and when I heard these words, it hit pretty hard. It sort of surfaced a lot of emotion, started to think about my own life experience. My parents specifically came to my mind. So it was very emotional. It was a very emotional experience for myself. After reflecting after that day with our group, I came to learn that none of us wanted to attend the delegation. Our initial thought was we did not want to go. For some reason, we all agreed to go and we came together. So the support and the community of kin that was created with the 13 participants that did attend is sort of just a reflection of how the Indigenous community, in my mind, has existed always. The path to reconciliation and true transformation will be built on the telling of truth, shining a light on the darkest corners of the history of the residential school experience, as told first by the survivors who experienced this terrible chapter. Canada has been awakened. The words of a residential school survivor today as the final report of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was submitted. His words came with a plea for Canadians 
to take that next step to take the call to action. Despite all of the great work that was done by the TRC, as we know, questions are still being asked about whether all of the relevant documents were obtained and the government still seems to be dithering to some extent on fully implementing the recommendations. Created as a requirement of the 2007 Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement, the largest class action settlement in Canadian history, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada's mandate was to establish full awareness of the tragic history of residential schools in this country. The TRC documented the truth of not only survivors of the school system, but also their families and communities, the churches involved, former employees, government officials, and many others. Concluded in 2015, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission collected over 6,750 statements from witnesses and produced 94 recommendations. 94 Recommendations 94 calls to action for the Canadian government to address the dark legacy of residential schools. I spoke with Chris Archie, Chief Executive Officer of the Circle on Philanthropy. The Circle, as it's usually called, is an organization that helps align the philanthropic sector in Canada with Indigenous communities and their long history of practices and principles on the ethical stewardship of resources. Here are her thoughts on the Commission's recommendations and how some people have come to view the term reconciliation as an intellectual concept rather than an actionable process or intentional change. A misalignment of understanding that has effectively stymied progress. It's an indication to the notion that reconciliation is an idea. It's not an action and a behavior. And in fact, it's part of the problem. Reconciliation is language that in the social context of the time of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission made a lot of sense. It was indicative of a lot of consideration and having worked with one of the original commissioners in the design and the development of some of the national gatherings, there was a real sense of possibility around the language of reconciliation. However, what was very, very important was that reconciliation wasn't possible without truth-telling and truth-listening. And what we saw after the 94 calls to action were released was that folks were really quick to jump to this notion of reconciliation, predominantly settler communities, right? We're like, okay, now we know, let's move on. Let's build good relationships. Let's have a good time. Let us find ways to connect. And sadly, and I actually keep it right here, two documents that I keep right by my desk and refer to quite often. This is a little book put out by the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, and it has all the calls to action. What's really wild about the 94 calls to action is that there are kind of two sections and people forget this. The whole first part is about addressing the colonial legacy of that harm. And the last half then is framed towards reconciliation. These are numbered. They're in order. That wasn't like, oh, let's just throw them in there. Let's, or let's do it alphabetically. No, no, no. These were prioritized. They have numbers for a reason. So people really thought about, towards reconciliation, let's focus there. 
But all of the work around addressing the legacy, especially in key sectors like child welfare, like education, like the justice system, that was skipped over. It was too heavy, it was too much. Very quickly, the language of reconciliation, we call the rhetoric of reconciliation, was washed down and very quickly centered the needs, the desires, and the interests of white folks and their desire to reconcile with this painful history. It was no longer centering the voices, the lived experience, and you know, myself as an intergenerational survivor, it was no longer centering our lived experiences and the experiences of the survivors in the world that we still live in under the Indian Act that still causes harm to this day. When I started at the Circle in 2017, there was increasing calls predominantly by Indigenous young people that reconciliation as a word, as a behavior, had been co-opted and in fact was causing more harm than good. There was more and more analysis about how the language of reconciliation had been picked up by government and by corporations and others to help sell an idea of their goodness rather than demonstrate action and change behavior. Tim Fox is also co-chair of the Circle on Philanthropy. He echoes Chris Archie's call for change and real action from the nonprofit sector, including with his own organization, the Calgary Foundation. It's trying to facilitate a cultural shift, ultimately an organizational cultural shift. There was a point in recent years that the organization that I'm now working for realized, and I would say, I would argue that the desire to mobilize the work of reconciliation has emerged all across the country. And so the Calgary Foundation was no different. There was a point though that they realized it was turning into the practice or the mandate of how they exist as an organization, meaning it was very transactional. It was about money. It was about trying to throw money at a problem to solve an issue and to fix some of the the issues that were happening. The organization quickly realized that that's really doing nothing in terms of mobilizing the work of reconciliation. And so the very word systems change, I think, is very new to many sectors and many systems. It means something different depending on what area of focus that you are working on. So ultimately, what I'm trying to do is mobilize the work of reconciliation, mobilize the work of racial equity by changing our system, by changing us as an organization. I think there's a mental model that exists and there was certainly a mental model that existed for the Calgary Foundation for the most part when you're working in philanthropy and for the Calgary Foundation, that mental model was, oh, we exist to help support charity. We're doing all of this great work in the community. When I came on board, I sort of had to help lower the surface level of that realization and really amplify and surface the fact that There's a big portion of the population, specifically the First Nations, Métis, and Inuit population, and now racial populations who are missing out on a lot of that wealth distribution. So it challenged our mental model. Now that's the work that I'm focused on. I'm trying to incorporate a change to all operational areas of our system as an organization. The change from within that Tim initiated with the Calgary Foundation is reflective of Peter Dinsdale's work on organizational change within YMCA Canada. Well, I became CEO of YMCA Canada in 2016 after uh, an entire career, frankly, with Indigenous organizations, never outside, and 
coming in. I was on the board at YMCA Canada for a couple of years prior to becoming CEO and lots of conversations about what can happen around reconciliation. But I will say that time, probably not unlike today, there was a lot of nervousness about making a misstep, doing the wrong things, not sure how to move forward. So in 2017, then into 2018, we developed a national statement of reconciliation that talked about our commitment to working with Indigenous peoples and communities that wanted to work with us and what role that YMCAs in particular could provide and could play in reconciliation. We're clear that we're not responsible for 400 years of colonization, but we're responsible for what we do today and how we move forward. And that's what our statement was all about and encouraging local wise to take action because my view is reconciliation will only be meaningful when it happens on the ground through meaningful actions. So all of our work was really around preparing local YMCAs for that journey. We did things like having our entire national delegation, including representatives from each YMCA, their board chair, youth and CEO to go through the Kairos blanket exercise. The whole idea of the blanket exercise is not only to educate you, but to also increase your empathy for others. So um, just understanding other people and other people's perspectives. Which really touches them emotionally. They understood it intellectually, wanted to make sure that they felt it emotionally. And it was a great opportunity to hear from Indigenous leaders about the impact that organizations like the Y could have with them and understand that they did have a role. So. It continues to be a work in progress. I don't want to suggest that we have it all figured out, but we started in 2018 and we continue to learn and continue to grow. The discovery of a mass grave for 215 children in Canada last week at a former school for Indigenous children is prompting calls for a nationwide search at other similar institutions for more burials. We started our radar penetrating research on June the 2nd of 2021. As of yesterday, we have hit 751 unmarked graves. Canadians are demanding answers after unmarked graves of Indigenous children were discovered last week on the grounds of a former residential boarding school in British Columbia. Similar schools existed across Canada and the United States with the intent of helping assimilate Native Americans by removing them from their culture and language. It could have very easily have been me or one of my sisters. It could have been my brothers, it could have been me. I was only eight years old. In 2021, the dark legacy of Canada's residential schools was thrust back into the spotlight with a discovery by anthropologists of 200 suspected and unmarked grave sites near the former Kamloops Indian Residential School in British Columbia. It was a stark reminder that unidentified grave sites near the sites of residential schools have been discovered since the 1970s. Currently, forensic investigations are occurring at dozens of sites across Canada, with the Canadian Archaeological Association estimating that they contain the remains of thousands of missing children. The Kamloops discovery generated international media attention, with CNN reporting that the Canadian government was facing criticism for being slow to act on missing children and burial information Recommendations included in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report back in 2015, including the funding of more investigations into unmarked graves in Indigenous communities across Canada. I, as a survivor, expected this. 
But what really shocked me was, uh, I thought it'd be 10 or 20. But when they said 215, you'd expect to find that somewhere else but in Canada. That was mind-boggling. The recent discoveries of mass, unmarked graves near former residential school sites and the media attention they generated was traumatic for survivors of the school system and their immediate descendants, forcing them to relive this dark period in Canadian history. But the impact was also felt by younger generations who may not have fully explored their Indigenous ancestry up until this point, who were also victims of federal government policies designed to, in John A. Macdonald's now infamous words, to get the Indian out of the child and solve what he called the Indian problem. Rowena Valen is the founder and lead instructor of the New School of Fundraising, an organization that offers courses and workshops to support the development of fundraising skills to support nonprofits. Growing up in Prince George, British Columbia, she only became aware as a young adult that the convent her grandmother had supposedly been raised in was actually a residential school. But the true realization of what that meant took her and her family decades to unpack. My grandmother was sent with her brother to residential school when she was three, and she stayed there until she was 18. She spoke very little of that time, and when I was raised, we were told that my grandmother went to school and was raised by nuns in a convent. I didn't know what residential school was. I think I was probably in my 20s or 30s when I realized when Canada started talking about residential school and then the realization that that is actually what my family had spoken about and that's where grandma went and she started to tell stories and we would just sit quietly and listen and then we also found different places where she was interviewed she lived in Prince George British Columbia which is in northern British Columbia and we found a chapter of a book that was written and she spoke about what it was like there at the residential school. She never went back to community. She learned to sew at residential school as they would teach the girls and she worked at Woodward's until she retired as a seamstress. In Prince George, she had three children who all had their own children and families. And she passed away two years ago now at the age of 97 and was quite healthy and independent up until those very, very, very last few months. It's very personal, but we always said like, residential school didn't take grandma down and like life wouldn't. She was tough, tough woman. And she never really wanted to be defined by that time of her life. She built a life for herself outside of that. For Rowena, this realization about her grandmother's traumatic experience of being separated from her family, traditions and culture as a child also revealed the profound loss experienced by her descendants of a sense of connection with their Indigenous heritage. Their connection is completely gone. It was completely gone. I think we all have our personal way of describing that or trying to figure that out. And as time goes on, I realized that really my family was colonized. And if you want to say it kind of bluntly, it worked. My grandmother was 
not connected to her indigenous family. There was 15 years of being taught to her that that was not who she was. She was changed. She was not Indian anymore. She was not to speak that language. Her name was changed. And when you're so little and sent there and for so long, and I think part of it as well, to not go home and have any connection during that time, there's nothing left to hang on to. And so we really didn't have that connection. And I would say probably in the last 10 years, it's been kind of my fight to get it back. Given all that she's learned about her grandmother's experiences, what does reconciliation mean to Rowena as an Indigenous woman? I think it's only been the last few years where I've even thought of myself as an Indigenous woman, which is very interesting to me. Growing up, we lived in just a suburban community in Prince George, and nobody really knew. People thought we were just tanned a lot. My dad doesn't particularly look Indigenous, and that's the lineage side of where it comes from, and so no one really knew. And so I think it's been a journey for me to even be able to say it. I remember going to our counselor a few years ago. We had a family meeting down in Vancouver, and our counselor is our family connection to our chief. So we have chief and counsel. And I sat with him and I said, Clarence, I don't know how to introduce myself. And he said, what? And I said, I don't know. Like, what do I say? And he just looked at me and like he understands, but like a sadness in a way, because he wants to be supportive, but how sad that I didn't know that. You know, I was in my 40s at the time, and I'm so learning to say Dene's part of the Dene's. Like I said, do I say peoples? Do I say, like, what does it mean? So I think it's figuring out kind of how to be that Indigenous woman, like what that means going forward. And my daughter's nine, and so she's also has her status through the government, so her lineage is strong enough. So it's also... How can she navigate moving forward? She knows more culture in elementary school now and beautiful things that she's learning than I ever have. So she comes home and teaches me. In most cases, Indigenous organizations, if they are not a band council or other form of local government, are not registered charities themselves. The only way they can receive charitable dollars is to consent to a very complicated an expensive agency or intermediary agreement between themselves and the sponsoring charity. I need not describe to you what the two words direction and control mean to Indigenous organizations and Indigenous peoples. Evidence of Canada's colonial past and history of paternal attitudes towards its Indigenous people can be found in unexpected places, such as the Income Tax Act. Specifically, how the Act governs how charities interact with non-charities. Up until recently, registered charities were required to maintain direction and control over the activities of the unregistered nonprofit organizations they fund, including many small grassroots indigenous groups and frontline organizations that lack qualified donee status. Legislation introduced by Senator Ratna Omidvar, which was eventually adopted by Parliament in a modified form, sought to amend contentious language in the Income Tax Act that required registered charities to only fund what was called own activities, meaning nonprofits had to maintain a form of ownership over the actions of the non charities they were funding. 
Rather than giving autonomy to organizations with the community connections and expertise to best use these resources. Whether it's due to restrictive language in the Income Tax Act or other factors, funding by nonprofits of Indigenous led groups in Canada has traditionally been very low. A 2021 analysis carried out by charity lawyer Mark Bloomberg and philanthropic fundraiser Sharon Redsky, discovered only 284 grants went to Indigenous groups out of over 28,000 total grants over $30,000 in 2018. In other words, just over 1% of grants went to Indigenous groups. And of the $8.3 billion in grants over 30,000 given by registered charities that year, less than 47 million went to Indigenous groups. That's just 0.5% of the total. I asked my guests, what has to change in the sector for nonprofits to better support the work needed to help heal the wounds caused by colonization and become proactive allies to Indigenous-led groups? Bill Mintram is Director of Indigenous and Northern Relations at Rideau Hall Foundation, where he oversees funding projects and partnerships with Indigenous communities across Canada. Being an ally is a part of that relationship process between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples in Canada. And being an ally is willing to recognize that each of us have experiences that give us unique perspectives on life, on how we view our communities, that we each have unique ways of knowing, doing, and being. As an ally, there's two parties, right? As we approach each other, we recognize that we each have those unique journeys, those perspectives, and that given those different ways of seeing, you're willing to work together, that you're willing to support each other, you're willing to have a a sense of humility in how you go about that approach. That as an ally, you're not fixed on, it's going to be my way or the highway. It's going to be, this is what we are looking to do. This is how we would love to work together to open doors, but not to dictate that You can join us if you meet our eligibility criteria and if we maybe create unintentional barriers in that process, so be it. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to really be able to have an effective relationship. And relationships, as we know in our personal lives, they can be messy. Things can not always work out perfect. There may be disagreements at times. And... In acknowledging that, it's being able to say, hey, we're willing to work together. We're willing to work through these things. We're willing to work through some of the historical differences. And we're willing to be flexible to better understand how can we meet your needs? How can we serve you and be able to really allow for the impact that's being proposed to be one that is Indigenous-driven, Indigenous-led, not having red tape, striving to change that power relationship. And so really being an ally is kind of all of those things. At the heart of it, it really just comes back down to how can we walk in a good way? How can we be intentional about being flexible? 
How can we acknowledge that the systems and structures of those who we're working with who have the self-determination to create their own system and structures, how can we meet them where they're at with their way of doing, instead of telling them they can only meet us based on our way of doing? Chris Archie of The Circle spoke earlier about how the reconciliation aspect of truth and reconciliation was being co-opted and watered down by government, corporations, and non-Indigenous organizations into a feel-good concept for settlers, rather than a signal for real action to be taken. She told me about the evening she realized a meaningful relationship between Indigenous groups and nonprofits had to be based on reciprocity, not reconciliation. In the spring of 2018, we gathered a group of 50 folks from across Canada and we went to Klaalquiet Territory, which is on the west coast of Vancouver Island in New Channel-speaking territory. And one night we had a conversation there in this multi-day training and relationship building program about reconciliation. And it was very clear that reconciliation was not as it was currently conceived of was not going to be possible because it was really centering again settler folks. So we started to ask the question like, well, what is possible? What else could be possible? And specifically, what else is possible in the space between settler philanthropy and Indigenous organizations? And what came through was this really, what I think, incredibly generous invitation, which was True reconciliation led by settlers is not actually what Indigenous communities want, need, or are interested in. Indigenous communities want and need and are interested in the things that they care about, that are accountable to their communities, that is connected to their lands and to their territories, to their languages and their cultural practices. And what settler philanthropy could do is actually to behave in a less transactional way with them and be invited into a more reciprocal relationship. And that reciprocal relationship would be one that requires of settlers to be willing to transform their behavior, to transform their limited thinking, and to consider how they are complicit in ongoing harm. So it was that conversation and the conversations that unfolded that then really just solidified for me the importance of no longer using the language, the word of reconciliation, because it had become this catch-all for things that we couldn't quite put our finger on. And I was like, that's enough. And so we actually started to do different kinds of work to explore the relationship between organizations and to give and support Indigenous organizations to reframe and to consider what a relationship from their space of power could look like and feel like with settler philanthropy. And by and large, what they said was settler philanthropic organizations need to do a heck of a lot more learning so that we are able to be in a space of power and well-being in a relationship to the philanthropic sector. Chris Archie's emphasis on respectful learning for nonprofits wishing to do more with Indigenous groups is echoed by Peter Dinsdale, who notes that not all nonprofits have someone who can provide an Indigenous perspective, as he does with YMCA Canada. But perhaps they should. 
Yeah, and I think we're advantaged. And again, we don't have it all figured out, but I think we're advantaged because I came from the community. I understood how to navigate it. And I appreciate if you don't have that entry point, it can be challenging and it can be nerve wracking. I think the first most important thing are relationships. If you're a local community, to make sure you're meeting with the communities, the First Nation, Métis, Inuit communities, depending on where you're at, and tell them what you do and ask them what they need and how can you work together? Are you wanted in that area? Is there space that's needed? How to provide space for Indigenous leaders themselves to occupy leadership roles in your organizations, whether it's on your board or in your staffing. I'd really encourage everyone to make sure that their services look like the community they serve. Peter was also clear that nonprofits need to look at their own structure and identify potential biases or other in-house obstacles to fully engage with Indigenous organizations and communities. I mentioned some of our successes, but certainly one of our challenges that might resonate with people. Not long after we developed our statement of reconciliation, I was in a wide and I asked them, how's it going working with their Indigenous community? And the response I got was, it's not going great because they don't come here. And it wasn't intentional, but it's this idea that it's us and them. And it's not until we're together in one community. And it takes a lot of work and it's not intentional. It's the impact of history of poverty, of not seeing YMCAs as someone that your family could go to, could afford to go to, or felt that was for them or that the services were ever really directed for them that could be directed for someone else. So how do you break down that in your community? You break it down by inviting people in. They're no longer the other. You're doing that work together. So we'll take hard work with your board in terms of understanding the history. We'll take hard work with your staff to make sure that there's not unconscious bias or different things going on preventing people from access to programs and services. But I would also say in Indigenous communities, it's okay to work with people and allow mistakes to happen. Things won't be perfect. And we can't be waiting for a gotcha moment to jump on a misstatement. We have to work together through kindness and caring to find pathways forward. So I would encourage all organizations to start that first step of relationship building as difficult as it is and challenging as it can be. I think reaching out and having those conversations is a great way to begin. When I mentioned Bill S-216 and its aim of removing paternalistic language and bureaucratic red tape from the Income Tax Act that has been seen as a barrier to the funding of Indigenous communities to Tim Fox of the Calgary Foundation, he told me nonprofits had to find the will and the way to act now to support Indigenous-led organizations and not wait for legislation to help them. In all honesty, Mary, no, it's not going to make a difference to how we are trying to be more equitable in how we operate and exist as an organization. Do I believe that legislation and laws like that are discriminatory and rooted in inequality? Absolutely. Do I also believe that there are many other laws and policies that exist that should be revisited, revised, thrown out altogether? Absolutely. I don't want to give the message that this work can't be done without doing that. It could absolutely be done. We're doing it. There are many other examples. I don't want people to sort of use that as another excuse to be like, well, it's limiting us to do this. And there are ways. There are ways when you work with community. And when I think about the Indigenous community and how I was raised on the Blood Reserve, and even how I exist in these contemporary times, when you see and when you're a part of an Indigenous community, and when you have these strong relationships, you're going to witness this community of kin. What I mean by that is we become sort of this family. Our family concept from an Indigenous perspective 
goes beyond the biological connection that we have to our parents. It extends to that extended family. It's definitely true in how we exist as communities. It exists in how we sort of practice our philanthropy. And so previously to settler-created philanthropy, our mindset was to care for everyone and ensure that everyone had what they needed when we sort of did the things that we did to survive. And now, in this day and age, what we're trying to do, what I'm trying to do is, what I'm witnessing is that that's coming to life. That paradigm of practice is coming to life. Philanthropy for us at the Calgary Foundation just doesn't mean wealth distribution. It also means how are we convening people? How are we sitting in relationship with one another? We're trying to amplify and be innovative on on how we practice our philanthropy. When I say innovative, I don't mean something new. I mean these old ways. How are we looking back at these old ways, bringing them back to this contemporary time? And so for me, those laws need to be revised. Frankly, there should be a whole audit done on how the structure of the federal government operates, specifically when it comes to First Nations support and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, that's not a conversation. What I'm trying to say is this work can happen right now, and it should be happening right now. There are ways for organizations to adapt, to shift, to support other partner opportunities, collaborative efforts. There are ways that they can increase the wealth distribution. They don't have to wait for a lot to change. There's still a lot of requests from our community on things that we need to move forward in a way that's rooted in reconciliation, that's rooted in right relationship, and ultimately rooted in healing. And not only healing for the Indigenous people, because I think framing it in that way, that it's the Indigenous community that has to heal, or that this history of the residential school is Indigenous history. I want your listeners to know that, no, it's not only the Indigenous community that has to heal, it's also settler nations and those people who were raised within that time, because if they're learning about this for the first time, then they should really be asking themselves, what part did my ancestors play in this really damaging, harmful history? And then what can I do moving forward? And know that this is not Indigenous history. This is a part of the very deep, dark, hidden past of Canadian history. With all the painful memories and dark legacy of residential schools and what they represented still resonating today, I asked Peter Dinsdale if he can see any cause for optimism in terms of helping the nonprofit sector transform itself by embracing Indigenous ways of knowing and leadership. Well, I mean, there are certainly different cultural ways of knowing and being in Indigenous communities, and that's a part of the cultural competency training. I think so important when you understand how to work with communities. Personally, I was fortunate to work at the Ontario Federation of Indian Friendship Centers at a very young age and work with Sylvia Miracle that taught me so much about cultural-based management and cultural-based competencies and how to use our traditional teachings like the Seven Grandfather teachings or Medicine Wheel teachings or others to help inform our work and how we approach things. Approach things in a balanced way. Approach things with humility. Approach things in a way that shows kindness and love, caring and compassion. Even your own leadership style. Coming here, I've never been a command and control kind of leader where all things need to flow through me and I'm the ultimate authority or all-knowing, all-seeing CEO. Very much encourage my staff to own their areas. And it's just a way of being in leadership that I've been taught, whether implicitly or just through mentors. And I don't think it was always received well at the outset. 
They expected a command and control leader, maybe that's always typically been in Western kind of organizations. So I think it's also making space for different leadership styles and ways of knowing and being. But I think Canada's getting there. I think one of my lessons leaving, I used to be CEO at the Assembly First Nations before I came to YMCA Canada. I don't think I appreciated the extent to which Canadians are seized with this notion and moment of reconciliation. So much of my career has been trying to raise awareness and fighting around the treaty relationship and reconciliation and coming out and seeing how much people really are wanting to do the right thing. And we have a great opportunity to walk together to do that today. When I turned six in July of 1973, Granny took me to town to buy me something new to wear for my first day of residential school. I chose a shiny new shirt. It was bright and exciting, just how I felt to be going to school for the first time. When I arrived at the mission, my shiny new shirt was taken away. No matter how much I cried and wanted it back, no one would listen. In July 2021, as a response to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action, legislation was passed by the federal government recognizing September 30th as the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, a day meant to honor the memory of the First Nations, Inuit, and Métis children who were forcibly taken from their families and sent off to church-run residential schools where their Indigenous identities were scrubbed away. It's also a day to raise awareness of the healing that continues for the survivors of the residential school system and their descendants. For many people, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, this awareness is symbolized by the wearing of bright orange t-shirts. They're a reminder of a time long ago when a six-year-old girl had her brand new orange shirt, a gift from her grandmother, taken from her as she began her first day in a residential school. It's likely that many in the nonprofit sector will also be wearing orange to acknowledge this important day. But as Chris Archie of The Circle says, building relationships with Indigenous organizations is a year-round activity. And the numbers show that past funding of Indigenous-led groups by the sector barely registers in terms of total dollars granted by charities. Will changes to the Income Tax Act be enough to prompt Canadian charities to correct the chronic underfunding of Indigenous organizations? Will nonprofits seize the moment and do the hard work needed to become better partners and allies with Indigenous communities and to support the healing of the wounds left by our colonial history? We hope the Indigenous voices heard in this episode will help answer these questions and start nonprofits on their own journeys towards truth and reconciliation. The drum, it is a symbol of the heartbeat of Mother Earth. It's a symbol of the heartbeat of each and every one of us. So it is very powerful, it's healing. I want to thank our guests for sharing their views and sometimes painful recollections of this dark chapter in Canadian history. And as we observe the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, 
I also want to thank them for sharing their advice for all of us in the nonprofit sector to better support Indigenous communities as partners and allies and how together we can move forward. Check our show notes and our website for links to resources to help you explore these important topics. If you'd like to hear the entire conversations with our guests, please visit charityvillage.com to watch all the video interviews. Support is available for anyone affected by their experience at residential schools or by related reports. The National Indian Residential School Crisis Line provides 24-hour crisis support to former Indian Residential School students and their families, toll-free at 1-866-925-4419. Immediate emotional support is available by contacting the Hope for Wellness Helpline, toll-free at 1-855-242-3310, or by online chat at hopeforwellness.ca. Charity Village is proud to be the Canadian source for nonprofit news, employment services, crowdfunding, e-learning, HR resources and tools, and so much more. Please take a moment to check out our website at charityvillage.com. In our next episode, we'll delve into the campaign for a federal home and government for the nonprofit sector and how, if successful, this could improve nonprofits' influence on policy that impacts them and the structural supports available to the sector. We'll also talk to Nikki Sharma, the first parliamentary secretary, community development and nonprofits in British Columbia, to find out more about her work and how a home and government looks in practice. Will the BC Initiative be a blueprint for the national movement towards building more influence for the sector with the federal government? The nonprofit sector's home and government, next time on Charity Village Connects. I'm Mary Barrell. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>